and let's file charges on Fauci. I mean, you and I can't get up in front of the nation and tell them what to do, can we? Because we might give them the wrong advice, and we are liable, aren't we? Well, we're we're supposed to be, and and this again is another thing where God's law comes in, and there are supposed to be ramifications for these kinds of things, and there's no ramifications and and very little methodology in terms of this constitutional construct for uh, bringing any of these people, you know, uh, to justice or to be charged with crimes. It's the very same question I said to my wife earlier this afternoon is, here we are, four years, got another election coming up. Is one person behind bars that we know lied and manipulated and did the things that were done um, in, in order no. to in order to, um, uh, to uh, I don't know what the word is, in order to tamper with that last election? And the answer is, as you just said, no. And so um, do we just have another case of, you know, the, the system just keeps rolling on and, and the people are going to come out in mass, and they're going to vote Donald Trump in again because they're so fed up with the other side. And I'm sitting there going, I don't see it. I see people fed up with the dadgum system and, and, and realize that it's going nowhere. That's what I see. Yep. And I'm seeing that the guy that's going to clean the swamp out has three times voted to fund the swamp the most massive expenditure bills in history. So they just print more money. Yeah, and, and that goes to another thing that Judy and I spoke about too. This whole issue with printing money or these crises, you know, I'm convinced and have been convinced, I've discussed it several times, is this is, this is a way to infuse the economy with money that is not here. Because the money is being extracted out of the economy. I mean, I, I used to do workshops on this 30 years ago. You pay, you, you, build, you, pay, you build a house. It costs you $60,000 to build a house. You pay the plumber, the electrician, the architect, the decorator, the excavator, the, renter, the uh, landscaper, everything. We built ourselves a house. Okay, we put $60,000 into the economy in order to do that. But then we're going to take $180,000 out of the economy over the next 30 years because that's what it's going to cost with usury interest and, and, and this fiat currency and inflation and so forth. So at the end of the day, how do you get new money back into the economy, and it seems like the only way they're able to do it is to create these crises whereby they're able to bring in massive tranches of revenue. All the while, all we are doing is putting ourselves in this never-ending spiral of never being able to get out of the subserviency of the oppression to the leaders. And so this is the point I keep making about I know that people don't want to hear this because they're so offended at 
the idea of quote unquote Black Lives Matter. Um, but when we talk about oppression in an oppressive society and what this society of, of America has become under those who practice wickedly, this is what we've got. And I keep saying it and saying it over and over and over again. It appears to me from the biblical record that the record is clear that God will bring upon us our own destruction because we will not do that which he's instructed us to do. And so the cries for tearing down this system, I'm just hearing these cries and I'm saying, you know, I believe that God is allowing the very words to be spoken to tear down this system and we ourselves as Christian body do not recognize that we ought to be tearing it down. And we, we honestly either do not feel the oppression ourselves or are just willing to tolerate it and put up with it. And again, I know that I, I, I'm not flying blind here that I don't believe, you know, that I somehow believe that these guys you know, believe what I'm trying to say and convey. I'm just saying from the biblical standpoint, it seems clear to me that the time for this nation to see its destruction is upon us because we have failed in our commission. We have, it's one of the things in my notes tonight. You know, we're that, we were, and, and to a lot of people still are, that shining city on a hill. We are that blessed nation that they want to come to and become a part of. And it is not the way they perceive that it is. Yes, you might still have an idea and some semblance of an American dream in this country. You, you might still be able to achieve or acquire it even in spite of ourselves. But obviously, it's not going to be very long for all segments of this population, but the ruling elite who are not going to feel this oppression because it is getting that bad. And then you couple in the idea that we're going to mandate a mask and mandate a vaccine and mandate whatever else the mandators will mandate, Well, you know, you, you, you bring up a good point. We are their stock, aren't we? And we need to be vaccinated just like a herd of cattle. I mean, essentially, that's what we are to the, the upper echelon, just a labor force. I don't even know if we're even to that level. Maybe we're the... To the level where we need to be eradicated. Well, we do need to be eradicated because you need to eradicate that that group of people, were, which are antithetical toward your ambitions and your aims, your goals and your objectives. And if your objectives are control, then you don't want somebody who does not want control. Those people do need to be eliminated. And in the olden days, they just used to eliminate them. Uh-huh. We're more sophisticated now. 
absolutely more sophisticated now. What had you had on your mind to discuss tonight? I have part two on my mind to discuss tonight. <clears throat> you better start now. you got an hour to let it flow. i got 50 minutes to make it work. All right. Um, from last message, we established that Revelation 12 does not convey the woman was in a literal abode of the heaven of God. We established the woman is biblical Israel. We established she, Israel, the woman, gave birth of the seed of David, a man-child who was Christ. All of these characters in John's vision there in uh, Revelation chapter 12 are physical, flesh and blood, so to speak. They're They've been given names or titles or appellations. I don't know if everybody knows what the word appellation is. It's, it's essentially a title given to something or someone. And so this is what we've got going on in Revelation chapter 12, which we went over in quite some detail last week and even a few more parts of Revelation. So um, the angel, of John, uh, angel told John, that very same thing, that these were all physical flesh and blood. Uh, Revelation 17, 15, this is where uh, the angel says to John, quote, the waters which thou saw where the whore sets are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So as I say, tonight's fellowship, this is part two, and I have titled it Seed Liners and Closet Seed Liners. And... Uh, last week's message was subtitled, Was There War in Heaven? I did send that out to a number of the people in the email uh, list, and um, we will see how the emails come in. I've got one email uh, so far that uh, gave it a pretty good thumbs up, had a couple of thoughts that uh, wanted some clarification on. I have attempted to provide those and indicated also that some clarification will be provided this evening as well. Uh, two more emails I haven't had time to digest, and I'll try to do that. So I want to reiterate, though, something that I stated last week as I was concluding, so it won't be missed or overshadowed by some preconceived notions or beliefs. I stated that Revelation 12.9 is used by the church world to proclaim the descriptive serpent of Genesis 3 is this old serpent called the devil and Satan here in Revelation uh, chapter 12 and that he was cast down to the earth. But we have proven from Revelation 12, 1 through 12, that the events revealed to John were not occurring in a heaven of the domain of God, but were depictions of things which had occurred right here on this earth. Nearly all the scholars and commentators, they want to refer to the woman as the church. I have shown you and proven that it is not, it is Israel. And I do want to also tell people that they should do their research and look this up, but the word church is actually ecclesia, it is the called ones. Church is a term that never should have ever been translated. It is incorrect. And most 
thinking Christians will understand that if they do the research and make the connection and realization. Israel was called. Let somebody, um, let's do this. Uh, somebody grab Hosea 11.1. 1. I think it's important. I was just going to touch on them. I know for sake of time. Uh, somebody grab Hosea 11.1. 1. I'm going to read Exodus 4.22. I think it's important perhaps that we go ahead even though we're crunching for time here, I'll pick up the pace and try to move right along so it'll be fast. Listen to the audio again and again if necessary, but we will get through uh, the vast majority of it this evening. 4.22 of Exodus. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord is the Lord, I should read, and thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Who's got Hosea 11? 1? Uh, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. All right. So right here we have another verification, and I wanted to cover it because it's a confirmation that the woman is indeed Israel. Only Israel was called... And we've given you uh, Exodus 4:22 and 11, uh, Hosea 11:1. And so, when these church leaders and commentators and so forth do this by making the church to be what is meant and referred to uh, as the woman, they take totally away the meaning of the text. Dragon in 12:3 also is number 1404 in the Greek, and it means a huge serpent. Metaphorically, they also apply Satan, and thus the connection with the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Additionally, I want you to note also that the beast of 12.3 is called a serpent, or at least translated so in 12.14 and 12.15, but then translated again as dragon in 1217. Question. Are these all then separate and distinct beings? Well, the answer is unequivocal. No. The serpent of Genesis 3 was to henceforth go upon its belly all the days of its life. But by implication, that means that the serpent of Genesis 3, therefore, has a life which was to end. The modern church has not ended this serpent's life, but rather keep it alive in Satan, a fallen archangel, using Genesis 12, predominantly, verse 9, to confirm or prove the serpent was cast down to the earth among a few others, which we'll also try to address in this part two. But before we get to those, let's recap just a few more things. We reviewed in Revelation 13.1 that it refers to a beast or is translated so. 13.2 and 13.4 says that they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. So one's got to keep track of the word used or the application or the appellation applied and or translated word. So if we had 
not correctly established last week that the dragon in Revelation 12 was not a fallen angel or archangel, Revelation 13.7 could not be made sense of. Remember what verse 7 said. It was given unto him, him being the beast or the dragon, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. That passage cross-references to Revelation 11.7 and 12.17, Daniel 7.21, Revelation 11.18, and Revelation 17.15. And this latter passage, Revelation 17.15, was part of our concluding comments in part one. You can go to those passages on your own because we're not going to have time to do that this evening again. But Daniel 7 is part of the scriptures that I mentioned that we will cover as used by the church world in support of their doctrine. Now there's a little more history that's still required. At this time, it was nearly universal of pharaohs, princes, kings, rulers, and the like to equate their existence to that of basically vice regents of heaven and even of God themselves and even gods themselves. This is abundantly evident that it was practiced in earnest both in the civil application as well as the ecclesiastical application. And it's Christ who excoriated the Pharisees who had seated themselves in the seat of God as vice regents of his own law. Likewise, it was the Church of Rome and them, that of England, who also did likewise. And Luther broke the power of Rome's God complex with 95 accusations against it. So when a man or a group of men organized together against God, claiming unscripturally for themselves a sacred honor or a due reverence from the people, it forms the foundation of idolatry and its idolatrous veneration. So invincible is this dragon, serpent, beast that John has shown, it prompts him to ask the question, who is able to make war with him? I like to stop on a question like that. Because what is unseen in that question? Somebody ought to be making war. This is a tyrannical, oppressive, persecuting, and idolatrous world power that John is being shown in this vision. Daniel describes it also. But first remember... The angel told John at Revelation 17.7 that he would tell John the mystery of the woman riding the scarlet beast, which is that great city, 
which reigns over the kings of the earth. Revelation 17, 18. Once again, what we've discovered and covered, this is not kings or a city in heaven, but it's a great city which reigns over kings of the earth. And it acts adversarial to the saints and those written in the book of life. And that's very important. Those written in the book of life. That is repeated in Revelation 3, 5. 13, 8, 20, 12, and 15, 21, 27, Exodus 32, 32, and 3, Daniel 12, 1, and Philippians 4, 3. I want to take us quickly to Exodus 32, 32 to 33, to give us a window back in time to understand what's happening in John's vision. Exodus 32. Verse 32 and 33. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin... Okay, this is Moses. It's very important we understand this. Uh, Let me start with 31. Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt not forgive their sin, and if not... He says, Blot me, I pray thee, out of my book, out of thy book which thou hast written. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Don't lose sight of that. If God spoke it, we better remember that he's going to keep it. And one thing that he said that Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And was it not Israel that sinned against God? The answer is yes. Our series in Hosea, where we began to uncover the greatest love story, unequivocally chose us that he kept his word. And he blotted them out of his book. But he also told them that he was going to keep his promise to them. And this is what had everybody scratching their head because they could not understand how God could say this one thing to them and then turn around and do the other, which was to divorce them and essentially blot them out of his book. But did he blot them out? All right, that's a whole other subject. But... My point is, is that that's a very important thing that we come to there in Revelation is that it talks about those saints and how this beast was going against those saints and those written in the Book of Life. And I gave you the scriptures where that is referred to, that Book of Life there in Revelation, Exodus, Daniel, and Philippians. Now this is not an archangel, archangel, devil Satan, it is indeed a world empire power. It's beastly, it's oppressive, and it's adversarial to God's will, his law, his saints, and his order. And most Christians, once again, they know nothing or very little about Christianity's history, and they basically have been completely ignorant 
of that city called Vatican City, which is actually a country inside the city of Rome, inside the country of Italy. Just like Washington, D.C. is a country, now some might argue against that to me, but just bear with me. It is, D.C. is a country inside the 10 square mile boundary existing within the boundary of the United States of America. Historically, Romans viewed themselves as a city that conquered Europe. But more than that, let it not escape your attention, Vatican City is just under 110 acres and it controls the beliefs. Something we touched on just as we opened this fellowship. It controls the beliefs of nearly one-fifth of the world's population. And it is indeed that city on seven mountains, known as the Seven Hills. Another thing which is forgotten from the former prophets like Isaiah is how Yahweh expressed his disdain for how the faithful city became a harlot, apostate, corrupt, and unfaithful. The United States was once also a shining city on a hill, so to speak which also has become apostate, corrupt, unfaithful, and adversarial to Yahweh, leading others, meaning other nations, other peoples, into corruption as a bad example and a poor specimen of Yahweh's word. As I was putting the notes down, I couldn't help but think this thought. Will God soon say what is recorded by Isaiah? Flip over there real quick. I didn't write the scripture in my notes, and I don't want to paraphrase it and botch it terribly. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. This is the leading chapter of Isaiah's prophecy and word. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Silver has become dross, the wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves gifts, follows after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come unto them any more. Therefore the Lord said, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of my enemies. I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away the dross and take away all your kin. And I will restore your judges at the first and the counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So I gave you the bad and gave you the good. I went a little farther than 121. Secular, ecclesiastical history records for all to learn. The papal Rome despised the wound that it suffered by the word of truth that was carried by the martyrs of Jesus. There's no doubt about it. So why is it so difficult for Christians to see and understand the biblical historical record of God's work 
with men and how he allows them to rise only to see them fall or hasten their own fall to their repeated idolatrous, fornicating, corrupting oppression and unfaithfulness. Will biblical Israel finally recognize its identity, its commission, and its mandate? Rather, it seems like it's biblical Israel in the U.S. and Europe, Ephraim and Manasseh, who has drunk the wine of the fornication with whom these kings and leaders of the earth now have likewise committed idolatry. And this is really why I believe we hear the cries of tearing down the country. And it's not easy for the person who loves God, country, and family to accept the fact that it's being torn down because of what it has become. It will happen. Our God does not lie. He's spoken it. I gave it to you out of Jeremiah 121. How about Jeremiah chapter 3? How about Jeremiah chapter 5 and 13? How about Jeremiah chapter 23, Ezekiel 16, and Ezekiel 23, Deuteronomy 28, Hebrews 2 and 4, just to name a few. The historical record is without refutation, basically. Just as we saw with papacy's rule over Europe's princes and kings during the Dark Ages, it's now long forgotten. Revelation 17.3, let's go back to it for a minute. Explain the scarlet beast. This word is number 2847 in the Greek. It's kokonos. Used of the robe put on Christ in Matthew 27 and 28. Four times this word is used in Revelation. Here at 17.3, 17.4, 18.12, and 18.16. And it's used in Hebrews 9.19. It is crimson. In ancient times, it was derived from the egg clusters of an insect to dye the robes of royalty. And it likewise pertains to the red dragon of 12.3. 17.4 of Revelation tells us the woman riding the beast is arrayed in purple and scarlet. In Mark 15, 17 and 20, it is porphyra, the Greek, 4209, meaning purple. But in Matthew 27, 28, it is crimson. And where was Christ? Christ was in Jerusalem. And who was in power? The Roman authority. And this is still the color throughout papal Rome. And one of the distinct observations one would have if they were to visit Rome. Now, I've mentioned that the purpose of this so far is not an exhaustive study on Revelation. We are in Revelation because this is where the church world is attempting and has for the past couple hundred years and maybe even longer if we're going to go all the way back to papal Rome and before the papacy even, this is what has been used by the church world, Christianity for the most part, to claim that this Satan, devil, serpent, 
derives out of Revelation 12 and a couple of others. And we're going to get to all of them. But I've routinely reminded it, everybody that as it pertains to Revelation, even a couple of my trucking buddies, I've tried to remind them because they hear these things all the time about, oh, this beast rising up and this antichrist and all the rest of this. And I keep reminding them that Revelation, we've been given three admonitions in Revelation in the very first part of the, uh, of the Revelation to John. And these are those three. Quote, things which must shortly come to pass, for the time is at hand, the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Those are three admonitions given as the vision begins to unfold for John. Now the church world has its followers looking for a future Antichrist, while Christ and John repeatedly conveyed they were and are and are yet to come. So I know that's been a long detour to help us catch up on some history, but a few more pieces of it are essential before I begin to address more of the church's serpent, devil, and Satan. We skipped over Revelation 12.6, which records the woman, remember is Israel, fled into the wilderness. So I want to address that, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed there 1,260 days, at the time that those words are being received by John, a historical record is made by Josephus at Antiquities chapter 11, page 2 through 5. And it says, quote, The ten tribes did not return to Palestine. Only two tribes served the Romans after Palestine became a Roman province. There are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond the Euphrates till now and are in an immense multitude. Israel was being nursed in the wilderness lands where they had been scattered by God. Second Ezra's of the Apocryphal books also records this at chapter 13, verse 40 to 46, and I quote, The ten tribes which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hosea the king whom Shalvanezer, king of Assyria, carried away, end quote. Josephus is writing at or near the time of the Revelation record, about 70 A.D. Revelation is believed by those that study the time and chronology to be around 95 A.D. So this is all in that same time period. Josephus is making a record. John is having this vision. And I wanted to cover this historical backdrop because as we've studied in the series on Hosea, Israel, Judah and Jew and Israel, Israel is not out of the picture, but rather is an integral part of the foundation for the Messiah and his subsequent redemption of Israel. And Benjamin was one of the returning tribes with Judah. But you shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Jeremiah at 6.1 calls Benjamin to gather themselves and flee out of Jerusalem. Jesus' disciples were Galilean, Benjamites, including Paul who confessed he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Of Benjamin. 
Isaiah 9.2 prophetically says that they walked in darkness, that they that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And that was the prophecy of that great light, Jesus Christ. This passage, Revelation 12.6, records also that they were to be on the move away from Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 7.10 and Isaiah 41 and 49 are the prophecies of the lands and the flight of Israel from the heathenistic, God-denying world powers that God delivered them into who rejected his word. All of this is evident that this war against the dragon, who is uh, this war of the dragon who's cast down, is against the Israelites. This is a ruling world empire being or having this power cast down, destroyed, or given a severe blow. These are adversaries to God's elect. They're the enemies of biblical Israel. And that is who the whole Testament is about. And Zechariah's triumph that was recorded at Luke chapter 1, 67 to the end, these are the enemies of the kingdom of God. And that's why it's important. I know that those of us here that understand this biblical identity of biblical Israel, we've gotten this over the years. Pastor Peters and Sheldon Emery and Earl Jones and and the men that even came before them were instrumental in conveying and teaching and keeping alive the understanding of biblical Israel. And then the writers of the numerous books, and we've done a number of fellowships here. We had a series of a couple of fellowships where we went over numerous books written about the history of our people coming to the shores of America long before 1492. All right, that was all backdrop. and Let's flip over to Daniel chapter 7 and get into that other part that the church world is using and has been using for the longest time. All right, my fingers fingers are a little slow here tonight, so... Daniel 7. I always... Um, For the sake of time, 8.30, I'm not going to get into the vision. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 16. You can read the vision on your own. Daniel's being given a, a window into the future, and for uh, for that we'll get there. But you can get there at the beginning of Daniel chapter seven. But let's go to the interpretation of Daniel's dream. At fifteen, Daniel says he's grieved in his spirit, 
in the midst of his body, you know, he's just totally stricken by this vision, and it just is troubling him. 16, I came near unto one of them that stood by, and I asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me. He made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four kings, which shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. I'll continue. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and had a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. What... What we read in verse 21 is that this horn is waging war against the saints and prevailing. Is this war in the literal heaven of the domain of God? The answer is no. It cannot be as the church has held for so long. They've boxed themselves in to their dogma and their doctrine, and only now are some of them trying to dig out of it, but yet not upset the sheeple, if you will. Verse 23, it says that the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth and is different from the others. It devours and crushes and the ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Is this kingdom in the heavenly domain that we would think of as God's domain? No. Neither Revelation 12 nor its counterpart here in Daniel 7 conveys that this great beast, dragon, serpent, called the devil and Satan, is a great archangel. But rather, both confirm it's an appellation or a title given to the beast that's seen in the vision. An adversarial beast, an opponent, an opposer of God, and the saints. 
an adversary to the word, an adversary and opposer to the brethren of the testimony of the God of Jacob Israel, who in those days received the gospel, which was the good news of their redemption and restoration to the covenant with God and the kingdom of God. And they loved not their lives to the death beginning with their leader, Christ Jesus, the Redeemer, who was God in the flesh. God laid down his life to redeem his people Israel, to bring them back into the covenant the covenant of the kingdom of God, back into fellowship with him. Not because they were greater and mightier than other peoples, but because he loved them. And because he made a promise to them. These were those whose disobedience to the command had made them subject to sin's penalty, death, all their lives. I truly defy anyone to biblically make of this Satan of the Old Testament and this Satan, devil, certain dragon of the New Testament, anything but the bondage of sin and death and its curse, which is its manifestation. With proper grammar and the context, the scriptural record is clear from Christ to the apostles. There's no new revelation, so to speak, implied or inferred as a literal demon or ruler of demons or even a fallen angel. In spite of the victory over this accuser, this adversary accusing the Israelites day and night of their sin and the consequence of the death, they were shown the path to life. Every doctrine taught of men has been adversarial and contrary to this biblical truth. Their inventions and doctrines of men. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him. 
insomuch that he that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Let me stop there for a second. This is just the son of David, the carpenter's son. He was able to make a dumb man speak and a blind man see. What is unseen here? Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow casts out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. So who was it that brought up the prince of devils, Beelzebub? Do our church leaders understand who Beelzebub was? Do they not understand that it was the Philistines' God? Do you think for a minute that Christ recognized the Philistines' God? No, he did not. But listen to what he says. They accused him of casting out devils by the prince of devils. Now this is going to be important to you later on in the series because I'm going to show you where that doctrine came from. The point that I'm trying to make to you is who is it that brings up the prince of the devils? The Pharisees. Jesus knew their thoughts, verse 25, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then shall that his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. Christ is saying to these Pharisees, there's primary teachings and secondary teachings. I learned from Pastor Peters in many scriptures. Beelzebub, being the prince of devils, according to the Pharisees' doctrine, but yet they claimed to be casting out devils of people, and so they were offended when they found Christ actually casting out a devil, and what was the devil? 
It was a dumb man who could not speak and a blind man who could not see. But, he says, verse 28, if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. And then he goes on to lay out some parables. It's followed in the biblical record really by a series of parables which Christ confesses that he uses for the sole purpose that those promoting their false doctrines of men will remain in their sin lest they should be converted and he would have to heal them. The primary teaching of the passage is much overlooked, if not outright disregarded, by much of the modern Christian believers. This belief of the Pharisees is Christ's primary focus and intention. He shows them that their professed belief in and casting out of devils, which they themselves participated in, could only be the result of a disjointed and divided kingdom. And still the Christian wants to divide and disjoint the kingdom of God who is able to, who, who's basically unable to control his own dominion that a rebel angel is cast out and his angels with him. And they give you some scriptures that don't even say that. Just think about it. Certain men place doctrines in front of non-thinking men, promoting them as biblical or in the name of Christ or in place of the Word of God. And then followers repeat it or practice those doctrines while holding on to these opposites as truth. This was the belief of those some in those days. And we simply can't approach the biblical record without some contextual awareness, historical context, if you will. And if you will want to arrive at a gospel meaning, you have to have some historical context of its meaning to biblical Israel. The God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob desired, no, he promised. He promised that he would bless them and that in them might all the families of the earth be blessed. But way back in the beginning, you see, one of his angels rebelled to become an impediment to everything God wanted to do. Is that not a house divided? A good example of America, or what they, the reason they want America divided is for its destruction. Exactly. Exactly. And I can hear it now. 
and some of the emails that are going to be sent. But I got to tell you, God did indeed say that he would punish them. No matter who they are. Why then don't the vast majority of Christians believe that they're being punished? Do they even know the sins for which they're being punished? Because their leaders have told them the law is done away. God is dealing with a spiritual Israel. And after all, What kind of a God do we have that cannot even control his own heavenly domain? But you know, those words are blasphemous because he can and he has. And he does. But I guess if you want to believe in two gods, then you can go ahead and believe in two gods. Now let me quantify something, or qualify it, or both. Do not think for a minute that I don't think that God can become your adversary, or my adversary, or my opponent. And so if he is my Satan, or as a Satan unto me, being a title, or if he even sends one unto me, it's his prerogative. If he wants to test me and try me, so be it. So be it, exactly. But don't peddle your doctrine to me that has no foundation in the Scripture. As I said last week, that is a doctrine straight from the Catholic Church. And one of the things that we started out in this fellowship, and Russell, you keyed in on it, and that is control. If we have not learned anything, what do these people with the false doctrines do it for? Control. They do it for the purposes of control. We right now are experiencing a false doctrine. It's called a killer virus. Uh huh. It has a name, COVID. It has a name. Russell, it will kill you. Uh huh. If you don't follow, if you don't kneel to it, you have to kneel down to it. And that's what the mask and the six feet apart and the To the heads of the beast. To the heads of the beast.
And what are the heads of the beast? The Dr. Fauci, the Dr. Burks. And to one degree or another, one might even say President Trump. You could make the case. Oh, but boy, oh boy, oh pay, oh boy. I mean, why not just turn and repent so that our children's lives would be better and benefit? No, 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 no. We will have scores upon scores upon thousands of scores of books about this great future Antichrist. So we can never in our own lives deal with this great enemy ruling over us today. It's like a red herring, isn't it? It's like a red beast, isn't it? Yeah. like a great red dragon. And just as we started out in this fellowship, where is the constitutional framework for which we are to fight this beast? There isn't one. The only construct with which to fight this beast is the Word of God. Which is what the Creator intended. Which is exactly what he asked from the very beginning, which was obedience, the will, and the command. Disobedience to the will and command brought sin, and the wages of sin is death. Exactly, which is destruction. Which is why you shouldn't do the things he said don't do. They appear to our eyes to be good, don't they? They do. We've got to have faith that creators knows best. So although it may look enticing, stay away from it. That's a good lesson we should remember in life. Don't let your eyes deceive you. You know, that's a good point. And it brings up that thought that I texted you last week and said, didn't Christ say nothing from without defiles the man? 
Yeah, I'm trying to figure that out. Nothing from without defiles the man. So that would be COVID. Because it's from without, isn't it? Yeah, and you know what? But it's what's in the heart, he says. So if it's in our heart to fear the beast, if it's in our heart to worship the beast in order to get along or in order to have life, then we now know the condition of our heart. So if we compromise... We weaken the heart, don't we? We do. When Satan entered Peter, the scripture says, is that contradicting what Christ said? Absolutely not. Peter's heart did not conform to the will of God. The will of God was that he was going to lay down that life, and Peter was not going to prevent it from happening. Think about Judas. Scripture says that Satan entered Judas. Judas was a thief. I want you to remember, and I don't have that scripture pulled up, but just remember, we're sitting down to sup. And they say, who is it, Christ? And Christ says, well, the one who I give the sup to. And so I pass the sup to Russell. And Russell goes, you dirty dirt bag, you. Did Satan just enter his heart? Satan just entered his heart, and Satan and Russell says, I'm going to go turn you over to the authorities. And that's exactly what he did. He was a thief. He, had a, he was a thief. He had a love for money. And so he's going to go turn Christ over for some buck. Yeah, he, he knew some people that could handle Jesus, didn't he? You betcha. There's a whole bunch more, gentlemen, and for those of you that are listening to the archives, I know that I went pretty fast this evening. I covered some historical ground, wanted to get you up to speed once again. It's hard to do these things when you cannot try in every particular message to get people up to speed on biblical Israel and the fact that biblical Israel did not go out of the equation. It is absolutely fundamental, foundational to anything that you're possibly going to do in the New Testament and especially the book of Revelation. And I don't claim to have a mastery of the scriptures. But I can tell you what I believe I do have. 
you put me on a hunt on something, and I'm not going to quit if I don't like the direction that the scent is taking me. And this is not a comfortable trail for a lot of people. And this is why I believe it was laid so heavily upon me that I believe this is where we have to begin. If I'm going to get into the seed line doctrine and address it, it occurred to me overwhelmingly that I have got to get to the root of the closet seed line doctrine. Because these are closet seed liners. And I know there's a whole lot of scripture. There's a whole lot of things. And people who are going to hear these at first are going to want to reject. They're going to want to recoil in horror, treat the audio as if it is somehow by some ignorant imbecile of Scripture because it is contrary and counter to what they have believed. But if you'll stay with it and you'll work it through to the end, I believe the fruits will be abundant. And I don't know that I'm going to keep going from one week to the next because I have a lot of things on my plate. I have a lot of things to deal with. I've got a lot of things coming up here. And I don't know if that's going to happen. But one way or another, we'll get through a series on seed liners and closet seed liners. I don't know what the subtitle of this message will be. I'll go back through my notes and I'll try to put something together as to what the subtitle might be. But it'll be on the archives. And I know it's a lot to chew on, but it ain't done. (laughs) So I'll close in some prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for your blessing upon this message wherever it would go, the years that would hear it. Father, we're just a few lone voices in a wilderness here of your people trying to shake off some of the old dog dirty tricks, some of the old preconceived notions, beliefs, and ideas, and the baggage that has prevented us from accessing you, fully trusting in you, fully comprehending you and the magnanimity of of your being, your existence, your creation, your will, your authority. Father, we keep our young sister in prayer in her labor or in her pregnancy. Father, we don't know when that'll come, but we know that you do, and you know that it's a good. I, I misspoke. 
thought she was at 39 weeks. I misunderstood the email. I misread it. Father, we lifted her up to prayer. So we know that you now have heard that prayer and she is in your care abundantly. Father, we thank you that the hurricane was not more devastating to those in that area that we know and our brethren that we love. Father, we just pray for our country. Pray that not only would they wake up, they truly will repent and understand the activating scripture, the activating clause, if you will, that activates the opening of your ears. That is to become obedient to your will, to your word, ways, to your statutes, judgments. That's my prayer, Father. Amen. Thank you. That what you've given me. Thank you for these men, for those that are sharing with our fellowship. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being with us, Lord Jesus. In your name we we say it. Amen. Well, I'm going to say good night. Thanks for the time. It's uh, enlightening. And maybe it'll spur others to get ticked off and prove you wrong. Yeah, I know. I say, I say bring it on, don't you? Yeah, I've I've opened the door and... And I knew how hard it would be. Well, and you want as you I, want truth. Yeah, and, you want truth worse than you want adulation. Amen. I do. I want truth. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm not worried. I'm not worried about the adulation. That's for sure. Uh, so praise God. If somebody's Somebody stand against it, bring your army and come on. But to date, so far, I've not heard one counter-argument to things you're talking about, biblically. Not one. That was Well, a, as I say, there's a whole lot more, and, and I know that there are, there are plenty that would begin to say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? But as I say... If we're not going to take the time to understand the language of the day, if we're not going to understand the colloquialisms used, if we're not going to even understand the translators' biases themselves 500 years ago and and longer, and it's coming to the point that there's so much information out there now there, there literally are, I mean, there are Bibles being printed right now that are being printed with Yahweh's name back in the scriptures. That's a blessing. Because it's in there more than 7,000 times and it was taken out. So why was that? And so that's happening. There's other things that are unfolding and being uncovered because there's just, you just can't. Those that want to hang on and continue to hang on to something, 
you know, we've even learned things about the flood and, you know, you know, even spiritual Israel. Brother Rich can attest to that too, you know. Is these things have been foreign to the vast majority of Christians. But we've learned and taken the time to learn that it's in fact true. It's not just some pie-in-the-sky stuff or some wishful thinking or something that we're just dredging a new doctrine out of. It's actually biblically correct. And praise God that, as Pastor Peters once said, it's getting out, it's catching on, and there'll be no stopping it. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to have to call her tonight. All right, man. Good night. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night. night.